Welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast with your hosts, Richard Hill and Matthew Darlitz. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. I'm Matthew Darlitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Science of Psychotherapy. And guess who I'm with today? Yes, surprise, surprise, you're with Managing Editor Richard Hill. I am. Uh, so it's great. Though no, it is. I, actually, I was just thinking, guess who I'm here with today? Uh, but it is. Here we are again. Um, I, I was looking, um, uh, you've been doing something really neat with uh, a variety of things. You've been creating uh, u- unique thumbs, little little uh, images, oh, and yes. they're, they're really cool. I love them. So so keep an eye out for those. It just gives a greater, a quicker grasp of who we're talking to and, and what's going on. But uh, Richard, context, context. Yeah, so context. you're talking about a um, uh, YouTube channel. So, on the YouTube channel, yes, of course, yes, podcast. Yes, so, so we're, we're trying to pull together our YouTube channel um, and, uh, you know, make it a little bit uh, better. Uh, so it's a learning curve. So if you are just... If if you're listening to this podcast uh, on iTunes or wherever, please jump across to our YouTube channel. Uh, you'll you'll find a link in the show notes and uh, check us out because there's uh, some other stuff there that uh, we don't put up on the iTunes podcast. Yeah, that, and that's great because it's always lovely to see the people's as well. You can do a bit of both, mm. and you can you can you can learn both. But of course, there's um, I, I guess you're not going to be looking at YouTube while you're on uh, driving that particularly. So, but the the essence of it is here we are doing our stuff. Remember, it, mm-hmm. that's now you can support us by watching the the YouTube yes. uh, channel as well because there's a little bit of uh, a little bit of not too invasive advertising that comes on, and that really helps keep mm. us going. Going. So, yeah, um, yeah. We, but but of course, we'd love to have you as a, as a member. But you also might like to go in, and if you just want to stay connected to us, but you're not sure about being a full member because of a lot of commitments, we have an open membership now where you can access some of the the materials. For example, you can access the magazine in the, uh, every every following month uh, for for a month. So we're we're trying to make uh, access more available and then of course if you find something you really love then you might come in and be a member so we're looking for that that open uh, membership go have a look for that fantastic well today uh, we are heading back over to the united states and we're going to talk to a mariana Turgovnik. now she is a author and the reason that we wanted to talk to Mariana today is, well, for a number of different reasons, but one of them is about loss and grief, because this lady, she has read a lot about loss and grief in all the classic literature, as well as having quite an incredible personal experience with loss and grief, which you'll hear about. So she is a writer and a professor. Uh, she splits her time between Duke University and New York City. And she in New York, she runs a, a program called Duke in New York. And uh, and she, she's written seven books. And uh, again, a link in the show notes. Uh, so you'll want to dive in and, and have a look at some of her writings. But a fascinating woman. Ah, yes. I'm so much looking forward to it. So let's go straight over now. We've had a bit of a, too much of a chat almost. And we'll go and talk to Mariana Togovnik. Mariana, thank you so much for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. It's so great to meet you. Thank, nice to meet you too. Thank you for having me. 
and uh, Richard here, so I'm I'm here as well, and very excited because we've um, uh, we we have the good fortune to be introduced uh, through various people to to uh, to wonderful people like yourself, and I was immediately attracted uh, to the, the the story of the books, which I went, which is one of the reasons, uh, and your very interesting work uh, at Clo- a Crossing Ocean Parkway was was a, a book that was uh, previously done and you've done a follow-up crossing right. back now rather than me describe it let's use that as a segue because I know there's a lot more going on in what you're what you want to talk about and what you're able to talk about it but what sort of the stories and what brought you into this uh, this level of public awareness Crossing Ocean Parkway was uh, was born out of the experience of coming from an Italian-American background. I am pure-blooded uh, Sicilian Calabrian, so Southern Italian, yeah. um, and, and growing up in Brooklyn, um, 1950s, 1960s, um, and uh, finding that a difficult place to be as an ambitious woman who wanted to go to college and uh, all that good stuff. Um, Italian-Americans were um, have made an enormous amount of change in, 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 in the, in, in the group in the last 30 years. But when I was growing up, women didn't go to college. They, they got married. Um, uh, and if they did go to college, they became elementary school teachers. And I, I had other ambitions and my parents who were lovely people, but somewhat conservative and, and, and limited by their own backgrounds, which is not sure how to deal with that. So I wrote this book when I was a, a full professor at Duke university and had taught at Williams College to very elite schools um, uh, populated by very wealthy people um, at at Williams, almost entirely white, a Duke less so, but still largely white, uh, very upper crust, mostly Protestant. And I was, uh, I had been raised Catholic. I was, I was extremely working class. And so um, uh, my medium of exit from, um, my social class uh, was marrying a Jewish man from the other side of Ocean Parkway, uh, where college education was extremely valued um, and feminine independence was extremely valued. And everyone in his family immediately understood that. And so I actually got married when I was in college, um, uh, graduated as Mrs. Turgovnik uh, and, and, and kept the name. Uh, my unmarried name uh, was DeMarco. And so uh, I use it when I'm writing autobi- autobiographically. So Crossing Ocean Park was about uh, Italian Americans in New York, Jewish Americans in New York, and um, the experience of the, the death of my first child when I was teaching at Williams College, um, and then a, a series of essays about um, Italian American intellectuals, um, Camille Paglia, um, Mario Puzo. Um, there's an essay on the politics of the we. And my father happened to die as I was finishing that book. And so the last essay was about the death of my father. Um, fast forward a number of years. I, I, it's, it's a little scary to think how many, but a lot of years. Uh, my mother um, is still alive. Uh, my mother, after my father's death, uh, partners with uh, the man downstairs who falls in love with her good looks and her cooking. Um, my brother is furious um, at my mother's finding another man. Um, um, my mother, at, at age 90, contracts her first and only illness, which turned out to be colon cancer, um, has surgery, has a stroke and dies. Um, my brother dies shortly after pancreatic cancer, upending our expectation of longevity in the family because there had been a lot of long life uh, in my family. Um, and I found myself in a little bit of a, 
a little bit of a tailspin. I'm somebody who normally writes a book every five years. And I kept starting crossing back and writing it and putting it away, starting it again, putting it away, starting it again, putting it away. And I just finally said, oh, this has to stop. I knew it really need to finish this. And so I just looked at it and I realized there were some chapters I just simply couldn't make work. So I took them out and looked at what I had left and gave it some form. And now it's a memoir about the process of grief, the grief at my mother's death, uh, the grief at my brother's death, uh, the complicating factor of my first child's death, which I had never fully acknowledged, and the various methods that I used to kind of um, move from that state of grief toward a feeling of more normalcy in my life. I mean, I, I was I mad crazy? No. But I was moving apartments all the time. I was fighting with my husband. I was restless like crazy, and I couldn't figure out what was going on. Yeah, so I, I know. Yeah, oh, it's, it's, it's fantastic, Marianne. They're an extraordinary, you know, when we, when we look back on our own life, uh, and we sort of go, oh wow, I've, there's a lot of things that happened. And I'm just thinking as I as I listen to you there, these extraordinarily poignant aspects of grief: loss of mother, loss of brother, loss of yeah. child. But crossing Ocean Parkway, uh, I can sense the the possibility of there being some degree of of loss and change and shift that might have involved uh, that sort of broad, more generalistic aspect of of grief of having to to find the way to change there. Do they cross over or poly in? What what's the frame there? I, I, I wouldn't say that grief was my primary emotion in Crossing Ocean Parkway. I mean, I was I was I was in my mid thirties. I had um, I had two young daughters. I was an administrator in my academic department. Mm. Um, I had published um, what for an academic was a best-selling book called Gone Primitive. Um, so I, I, I was I was I was experimenting with memoir and, and the personal voice in writing, which was a great thing because academics are trained to write in very dull ways that push people away. And I was experimenting in ways that were warm and personal and pulling people in. So it wasn't a grief reaction. Uh, you know, I mean, decades later, you know, you're 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 older. You're aware that um, that when a parent when when your birth family dies, which is what this book is about. Um, you're it. Uh, you are the repository of memory. Um, there were many things I would have liked to know, uh, but relatives had either disappeared or had died and there was no way of finding them out. So, um, I, I, you know, I, 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 I never knew how my father would feel about the essay about his dying. Um, I'm pretty sure my brother would hate this book. I don't know how my mother would feel, but um, I was pretty sure that, well, obviously they're dead, so they would never know. But even had they been alive, this, I'm pretty sure they wouldn't have read it. So they wouldn't have known that I had done it. So what I'm, what I'm fascinated about is um, the fact that uh, as an author, you know, you, you, you dive into these topics and something so personal, something that often many people will try to avoid at, at all costs. And, and you go headlong into it by writing, you know, essays about very personal loss. So I'm wondering, what did you discover through that process? Let me talk to the author in you. You know, what did you discover as you as you put these things down in writing? Well, at, fir at first, with Crossing Back, I didn't know what I was writing about. Uh, when my mother died, I was writing a book, which in my mind was called The Classic and the Contemporary, and was about the relationship of the classics, you know, the the, the Greek and Roman classics and, and, you know, Renaissance classics to contemporary literature and contemporary life. Well, that quickly 
you know, kind of went away. Uh, I had just uh, finished a book called The War Complex, which is about how World War II is remembered in our time. Mm. And um, I was having an enormous amount of trouble accepting this may sound strange. I was having an enormous amount of trouble accepting the fact that I, I was in grief because I had just been writing about World War II. Hey, a lot of people experienced grief in World War II. Uh, uh, families were disrupted. Life was disrupted for many, many years. I, 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 there's an essay about uh, the Holocaust in there. Um, but, you know, the, the, the aerial bombings of, 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 uh, of Germany and Japan, so much loss, uh, the, the massive loss of life in the Soviet Union. So, so much loss. And, and I, my mother was 91. And why was I having such grief? So I was having trouble writing it. So then I thought I was writing a book about the classics and war. Well, that worked better. There's a lot of war in classics. So that was kind of working, but it wasn't going anywhere. And then I noticed I was, as I was doing this, oh, and by the way, did I tell you my mother died? And I was talking about my mother's sister. Oh, and then when my brother died uh, with uh, about a year later, oh, did I mention my brother died? You know, so I quickly realized that what I was really doing was writing a memoir. But then um, the problem was how to integrate all these different strands that I had going. Um, so, uh, you know, I finally, um, at one point I tried unifying it by recipes and that turned into a chapter in the book uh, about food and families and, and, and cooking as a, as, as a method of recovering family connections. Um, and, and then I, I was doing meditation after my mother died. I, I had been a physical yogi before. At one point during this whole process, the stuff I tried was actually kind of nuts. I have these short arms and short legs and I decided, oh, I'm going to learn to teach yoga as though I didn't have enough to do in life. So I thought, oh, let me try and learn to, to do yoga. And then I realized, oh man, that's not going to work. But I did start meditating for 20 minutes a day and that was really helpful. That put me in a different space. Um, so I guess the answer to the question, it's not very satisfying, but I didn't sort of confront the writing about grief directly. I, I confronted it by indirection. Um, Roland Barth, a famous critic, published a book called A Mourner's Diary during this period. And he talks about... Um, uh, he, he he was so deeply in grief, he got hit by a car and died. He just wasn't able to concentrate on life at all. Very famous man. Uh, and he had, he had a phrase which stuck in my mind, at least in translation, the phrase was memory without pain, uh, that the goal of the mourning process is memory without pain. So I, I, I kind of was beginning to kind of, you know, is that fully possible? To what extent is it possible? So I was examining that. Um, so I guess, you know, I'm a literary critic, so I was examining a lot of what I was doing. Why was I reading class? books. Why do people do that? Uh, why was I meditating? Why do people do that? Um, why do people cook? I mean, I was kind of self-analyzing because that, I mean, that's, I mean, this kind of person I am. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm an academic. I, I kind of look at what I'm doing rather than just do it. Uh, interesting. <laughs> yes, a bit of a worse. Yeah. I mean, interestingly, I, I actually think you answered the question really well. Yes. Uh, uh, and I loved that but I love that point of uh, I wasn't necessarily, uh, you know, specifically uh, directly journaling for the, the process of, but through the process of writing and, and expressing and I guess putting it out there, putting things outside of the, of the private yeah. space. Um, I mean, there, there are really beautiful grief memoirs. Um, there's a, there's a, um, a guy named Goldman did a book called Say Her Name about the death of his fiancée in a kind oh, of yes. freak 
uh, Accident in the Ocean, beautiful book. Uh, Joan Didion, who's a little too mannered for me, The, the Year of Magical Thinking and uh, the, the follow-up on her daughter's death, Blue Nights, I think it's called. Uh, a little too mannered for me. Um, Joyce Carol Oates, a writer I love and uh, a friend, uh, but she did a book called uh, a Wid- The Widow Story, which I thought was a little too close to, to the experience. So there, there, people do do grief memoirs, but I kind of wasn't setting out to do that. I wanted to do something which had a wider a wider valence, a wider focus. Yeah. I lost a, uh, a close young family member to suicide. And it was interesting. I wrote a, a, a book um, that helped me work through the grief. And uh, he, uh, her brother wrote a book that helped him work through the grief. Mm-hmm. And just listening to what you're saying there, his book was was just, it was beautiful, but it was mm-hmm. just heart-wrenching. And my book was uh, a whole set of um, positive uh, parables, really. I I just uh, went on a world trip and I I wrote about everything positive that I could see uh, in in the world. So that very, very different experience. But but what's lovely in amongst all this, you've you've alluded to it, but I'd like to, if we could just go a little bit uh, more into this, these ways of managing, these ways of going through the the cooking chapter, the meditation, the the yoga, how are these things uh, productive and helpful and What's, what are some of the ways you talk about their, their benefits? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, one of the things I realized is that, uh, that all of the things I was doing had some some common traits. Uh, the first thing I started doing was reading the classic books, of, and I did it in a very systematic way. Homer, um, uh, Aeschylus, Euripides. I was very methodical. I just came forward. And I, I, I lingered at Dante because I had taught Dante and Dante was especially meaningful to me. That's one of those chapters that never made it into the book. I just couldn't get it right. Um, and then I realized, I felt so original. Oh, I'm reading the classic. And then I realized oh, a lot of people do that. And, and the more bookish you are, the more likely you are to do it. So I thought about what that meant. And I thought, well, I mean, I could name at least five books right now where people read classic books as a way of coping with grief. And uh, I think they do it because it's a fixed orderly thing. You start at one place, you go to another place, a certain amount of variation, but not a lot. Um, And it puts you in touch with this wider perspective, a long historical perspective, and in which you realize, or at least I realized, that the classics are not about happy events, they're not bright and shining, as some critics think. Uh, they're actually about family trauma over and over and over again and 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 grief and death and and war and the terrible things that have happened to people and the unforgivable things that people do. And I thought, oh, well, um, it's interesting that the classics are talked about as sources of wisdom, but they're actually sources of, of anxiety relief. I mean, I, I'm not so bad. Look at these people. Um, OK, so there was that. Um, meditation is 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 very similar. It's like chanting or prayer. Uh, there's a series of events of, of things you'd follow before you go into it. Uh, all all forms of meditation, um, and especially, maybe especially the one I was following, it has lineage. So it, there's a, there's a long past behind it. You go through the sequence, and again, you're you're in the state of mind of meditation. So you're thinking. Well, you're not thinking. You are yourself. You can't help but be yourself. But you stop thinking and your mind goes to a place which becomes aware. Oh, oh, there are spaces that aren't me. 
and things are things that are bigger than me. And it just helps to put things in perspective. So again, regularity, order, lineage, perspective. Um, cooking is a little different. I think cooking depends on, on the role of cooking in, in your household and the role of cooking in your ethnic group. Uh, I'm Italian-American. My mother was a dynamite cook. Um, I had... Uh, she never wrote anything down. She was, I, I figured out after my father died that she actually had never learned to read and write because she had grown up and she was American born, but but went to Calabria and then came back to America. And she just was never in the educational system. So very smart woman, but she never learned to read and write. So she never wrote a recipe down. So I, I tracks, I did write some of her recipes down while she was alive. But what I didn't write down was lost um, um, and there was one particular recipe, which I knew I had written down, but as I was moving from place to place, I had lost for an Italian pastry called Sfingi. Um, and it was, it was like, oh my gosh, I, I was cooking her recipes. I was duplicating them. I gave copies to both of my daughters of this book that I put together, where the Sfingi. Uh, so it was a source of great loss. And then my younger daughter found it. And so we, now we had the Sfingi. So I was able to cook it and we were able to recreate that, you know, so. So um, I'm not sure there's, is there method there? There's method, there's lineage, but it's much shorter. It's more personal, I think, than either of the other two. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so what I'm wanting to find out from your, because yes. you obviously, you've read a lot of literature on yes. this topic. So yeah. are there common factors that we, because there's, there seems to be like, everyone's an individual and everyone has an individual approach to, you know, processing, um, you know, loss and trauma, but can we identify from the classics and from your own personal experience, some common, some commonalities and common factors? Because I think if we can identify some common factors, we can also then identify some some anchors. I mean, you, you talked about regularity, order, you know, this food. You know, these these for me, these sound like anchors that can ground you as you're processing the grief. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I, I I I think that's true. Uh, I I I guess I'll start with a, a classic reference in in um, Homer's The Odyssey. Um, uh, Odysseus's son. Um, is told by the goddess Athena. Um, it's a wise child uh, who knows his own father. Um, and um, I, I, in, in crossing back, I, you know, I, I changed the genders. It's it's a wild, wise child who knows her own mother. Uh, but I think that one of the common elements in um, any um, book about grief is going to be a relationship with parents and uh, what it taught you about being a warm-hearted person or a reserved, cold-hearted person, um, and that that affects um, the way that you're going to encounter the situation. Now, I grew up in a, I, it was, I mean, it was a loving home, but the ways that loving were expressed were extremely indirect. I mean, it was, you know, have a meatball, let me buy you a dress, um, let me keep the floor clean. It was, it was, it was very, there was a loving household. There was absolutely nothing unloving about it, but it was very, it was very, it was very controlled and, 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 and um, reserved. Uh, my husband came from, comes from a family which is like oh you're the most beautiful you're the most wonderful you're the most amazing it's warm-hearted and uh, it's also chaotic <laughs> but it's very warm-hearted um so this so i think that people need to come to terms with that what you know the basic template that they're starting with um the next thing they have to come together with is their own particular temperament 
um, which again can be um, analytical or Jesus, I'm a mess, or um, I can I can barely hold it together here. Uh, they you probably don't get to write a book if you're in that condition, but you know some people come very close. Um, so coming to coming to terms with your own temperament. Um, is there anything? Oh, I think whatever whatever role religion plays in your life is is going to is is, is going to impact the, the the way that you process grief. Um, you know, again, I don't know how personal. Well, why not? I mean, you're 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 asking. I mean, I, I grew up as a Catholic, and there is a residue of Catholicism in me. But um, the the Catholic Church services for the dead were totally unsatisfactory to me. They were very impersonal. Um, uh, the, 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 the priest announced that we were to have faith in the afterlife and be comforted. That's it. Um, and there was no, um, not even any personal reference to the person who had died. Um, and again, my husband's tradition, the Jewish tradition is very different. There's a lot of talking about the person, uh, a dear friend just died of pancreatic cancer as my brother did. And at his service, and it was an Anglican service, uh, there was a lot of talking about him, you know, so it's that there is that. So I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure his family found that a comforting ritual. I did not find the Catholic rituals comforting. So the, again, the role of religion and the role of um, the, the rituals that are part of your tradition, I think need to be part of any writing about grief do you think there's a um so when faced with mortality there is a commonly a searching for you know the transcendent something beyond oh yeah mm. yeah my brother um who was always a religiously a skeptic um uh, when he was dying of pancreatic cancer just kept telling me about you know monsignor robert oh hey monsignor robert well, let's tell me about that uh, but he he suddenly became a you know a, a devout catholic and you know i was it was surprising to me because it was something that was not part of his makeup um, my mother, we never talked about religion. My mother went to church, but I don't know if she was religious. Uh, my father was, you know, went to church when my mother went to church, but he was not religious. So, um, yeah, no, I think there's a, a there's, a, there, I mean, sure, certainly when you're confronting mortality, um, the fact of an afterlife is going to be one of the things that you're thinking about. Um, tomorrow, in fact, I'm, I'm teaching Emily Dickinson, um, because I could not stop for death. Um, and um, uh, in, in that same class, I'm going to teach Dylan Thomas's uh, Do Not Go Gentle uh, into that good night. Right. And, um, and, you know, again, by temperament, I mean, Emily Dickinson was someone who um, deeply resonated with death. I mean, she personifies death. She imagines death as a friend and companion. That television show that they did personifies death and makes death into a character. That's not wrong. She seems to actually have had that kind of relationship to death. I'm going to tell Mike, I'm going to compare that to a line from Keats that we had come upon two or three weeks ago, which the students will nod sagely when I remind them of it, where Keats in To a Nightingale talks about, um, for many a time I have been half in love with easeful death. And uh, that word easeful death is, is a very significant word. Um, and then Dylan Thomas, of course, rage, rage against the, com you know, the coming of the night. It's a very different kind of temperament entirely. Yeah, so isn't that interesting? So death, um, you know, personified as a friend or as a foe, and um, yeah. sometimes the, the both trying to hold both together 
um, yeah. at the same time. Yeah. I mean, many people have, have experienced the loss of, of family or friends through cancer. And, and uh, one of the things I, I you know, when, when it's, and Susan Sontag talks about this, when it's talked about in terms of the fight, the battle, it's just, it's, it's, it strikes me as, 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 as odd and inappropriate, it's not something that one chooses. Uh, people handle it in different ways. Um, I felt my my brother made all the wrong choices and ended up not being able to get out of a hospital the last three months of his life. My friend who just died did get out of a hospital, but was determined to fight it until the end. Um, you know, so they're just this. And I, when um, there's an author, Sid Arthur Mukherjee, who did a book called The Emperor of All Maladies about cancer, and he, and he, he talks about you know cancer is part is it's part of our DNA. Uh, you know, cancer is, is is more efficient than than most of our cells, uh, but it's it's part of us. Um, so the idea of battling, fighting, it's a it's a hard it, it's a very common configuration, and I understand it because people do try very hard and give up a lot. And you know, I, do I understand it? Yeah, I do. Uh, but um, there's something about the metaphor which is a little too reflexive and unthinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just wanted. Uh Bring in another layer here, just you mentioned Susan Sontag. It just it reminds me of something you said earlier uh, of the the shift in the status and the nature of, uh, I think, in the social, the economic, the political place of women. Uh, and yeah. so, through all this over these um, over these decades, you've also had that going on in your experience. And of course, there was a very quick one, a, a rapid change as you crossed over the parkway. Uh, yeah. How did for that me, affect things? Uh, for me, it was very quick because I went to from um, Bensonhurst in Brooklyn. Um, I was By the time I, I was interviewed at Williams, I was living in Brooklyn Heights, which is the tonier um, kind of brownstone neighborhood in North Brooklyn. Uh, but when I when I was going to be interviewed at Williams College, I, I, didn't know what, I didn't know where it was. So when the bus passed through Amherst, they said, wait a minute, aren't we going to William and Mary? And no, they said, no, no, Williams College in Williamstown, Massachusetts. And I later discovered that that was astonishingly ignorant. (laughs) But I I was in graduate school, but that wasn't my world, so I wasn't paying attention to it. Um, By the time I taught at Duke, which was five or six years later, um, uh, this Duke is a university doesn't have a lot of students. It has about 8,000 undergraduates, but has a lot of other codicil schools. Um, and uh, but at that point, there were like 25 faculty members who were female. And uh, we used to have a women's group to offer support and, and talk about it. And, and then after about five years into the group, uh, we kind of realized that the people we were trying to advocate with were mostly sitting in the room now. I mean, the diff- some of us were deans, some of us were chairs and whatnot. So that began to go away. I don't know what percentage of the faculty now is, is female, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was 40 percent. Um, it probably should be closer to 50 or 55 percent, but 40 percent is an enormous an enormous change. And and that's true. It's true in a lot of fields. I, I don't know what it's like in Australia where you are, but in, in the United States, it's true. But there's still, well, I mean, you know, the it, it's, it's still a problem. I mean, America has yet to elect a female president. 
We thought that was going to happen in 2016. It, it didn't. Um, I, I think it did, but that's another story. Um, the uh, <laughs> that's another story. So the, we, we America still has not elected a female president. Uh, Germany has had female leaders. Britain has had female leaders. Has one now. Um, uh, India has had female leaders. Uh, countries in 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 South America, but not the United States. Um, uh, I was just watching. Um, uh, a pretty wonderful um, fictionalized documentary about, um, I'm going to forget her last name, uh, the, the woman who, who founded that company for testing the blood. She, she raised enormous number amounts of money, $10, $10 million, $20 million, and had all kinds of prestigious people on her board. And the machine that she had supposedly invented didn't work. And she oh, was so yes. Mm, I remember. Mm. Fascinating story. The documentary is called The Dropout by Michael Showalter, who's the son of uh, somebody I know, and I've met Michael. But just a wonderful show. And um, uh, there's kind of mania uh, uh, um, that, that was visible in this woman. And, and, and you know, I mean, the, the word on the street was, well, now she's hurt women entrepreneurs who want to do startups. And, and that happens. You know, women sometimes wind up catching the rap for things um, in, in our culture, um, um, you know. Some politicians who will not be named can do all kinds of stuff and it just rolls right off them. But, you know, a woman um, who, for instance, has a separate email account, man, that's bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we we still. I, I mean, I think Australia still suffers this. We're we're doing, uh, we're doing pretty well. We have a, a in the the current more progressive party. Uh, we have quite a lot of women uh, and very very influential and very uh, uh, well respected and uh, utilised uh, women, which is fantastic. Uh, mm. Our our foreign minister at the moment is is probably one of the safest intelligences in in our whole government. So I'm so glad she's our. Foreign Minister, right now. Yeah. I mean, the same. The same is true here. I mean, Nancy Pelosi. You know, I mean, the woman is eighty years old and a, a just a phenomenon to be going to the extent that she is. And there, there is a very strong. I mean, Liz Cheney was mm-hmm. incredible. What 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 she's done this this last year, just incredible. I'm, I'm expecting we'll see her again in some national role, um, but. Um, I don't know. There's still a, there's still a, like a bracket, you know. The, a woman who's doing this is still something which is noticed rather than uh, being just totally taken for granted. Uh, I mean, women are the majority in colleges right now, and and this shouldn't be surprising if they're the majority in the faculty. But there was a very interesting comment from a uh, uh, an African American uh, elder uh, in relation to Barack Obama when someone said to him, "Isn't it remarkable that uh, uh, Obama is president?" and he said. No, it will be remarkable when it's no longer remarkable. Yeah, and and yeah. this, I think, I think women are, are, are perhaps still moving closer towards there. But it's, uh, but thank you so much for yeah. just expounding on that that other layer, which is so interesting. That's right. wonderful, fantastic. Now, as we as we kind of wrap it up, I'm wondering if we yeah. can sort of go back to the beginning and just revisit, um, you know, this this topic of death, loss, and grief. Are there some um, are there some sort of takeaways um, that that we can glean from you um, with all of your knowledge in this area? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I th- I think that um, everyone everyone needs to find their own way. 
uh, for me, um, a, a regular routine of physical yoga followed by meditation was absolutely key uh, because of the kinds of perspective that it gives. Just it slows your breath down, slows your pulse down, uh, just makes you feel calmer, um, makes your default reaction kind of laughing. <laughs> rather than scowling, uh, which is which is helpful in and of itself. Um, so for that, for me, that was enormously important. And then um, there's one chapter in the book, and it's an exercise which I, I, I guess I would recommend for almost anyone who feels like they're through, they've acknowledged grief. First thing you have to do is acknowledge grief. You can't deny it. Uh, stay with it for a while. Work it through in whatever way works for you, reading books, chanting, doing you kind know, of consulting religion, spending time with your psychotherapist, whatever it might be. Um, but then when you feel like you're coming out of it, I did an exercise in memory where I um, I kind of said, well, what is what is the memory I have first of my father? And I wrote it down and wrote it up. And what was the memory I had first of my mother? And I wrote it up, my brother. Um, I, my, my dead baby didn't have one, but I, I had one on his behalf. Um, and then I realized... That, I mean, that was memory without pain that I was able to write that and then connect it with the meditation experience. And for me, that was a kind of wrap up um, and, and, and was was very important. So I, 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 I don't think there's one path, but I think it would share the common elements that we've talked about earlier. Um, uh, awareness of your family heritage, awareness of your temperament. Um, uh, trying out some methods that uh, have worked for other people, seeing if they work for you. Um, and then uh, just being aware when you're coming out of it, let yourself come out of it. Don't get stuck in it. Lots of people. Um, I have one, uh, she's not a dear friend, but she's a friend. Uh, and she's the widow of a fairly famous writer. And she's become a professional. This is not This is not the person I mentioned earlier. Um, uh, she's, she's become a professional widow. I mean, she's devoted, she's given up her life um, and, to and, and, and trying to recreate things that her husband once wrote, um, and, and there's something there's something wrong with that. It's not that's not so much a tribute to the person. It's kind of an, an unhealthy obsession, I would say. Yeah, oh, that's beautiful. Thank you so much. There's so much there, and for those you know, some neuroscientific uh, therapists out there, I you know, and, and also your trauma based, I could hear you hopefully all going, ah, vagal tone, ah, yes, positive uh, affirmation, <laughs> ah, yes, uh, uh, you know, mental orientation. It was, it, it, there's so many I, things. I, I, I'm sure that's all true. <laughs> yeah, and 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 I just say that because I want our our listeners who are starting to think that yeah, go and start looking at these things that we're talking about in various aspects of physical behaviour, and go get your book and start relating and engaging and integrating the the knowledge and which is what the science of psychotherapy is all about is is taking whatever is out there and finding its integration. Nothing sits isolated. If it sits isolated, it's possibly wrong. So, uh, so it just we just want to thank you so much for sharing a, an amazing journey. I, I, I don't know about you, Matt, but I just I'm sure. Oh, great! I mean, we we went to places. We were in Homer for goodness' sake. What a, what a joy! What a joy! And 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 Dante as well. So, thank you so much for taking us on this journey. Now, Mariana, where, where can people find out more about you? Do you? Um... Uh, yeah, yeah. There's a website. What um, my the, the last name is T O R G O V N I C K. Uh, so, MarianaTurgovnik.com, um, and then you can find the book on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, Goodreads, uh, all of the usual suspects. 
Fantastic. Fantastic. We'll, we'll put those links in the show notes for everybody. Mariana, thank you so much for being here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye for now. That was amazing. Yeah, that, that was, was amazing. very nice. Yeah. I mean, I, we went, we, we literally, we, we, through the classics, through the history, through women's changes, through cultural shifts, and yeah. this, this extraordinary thing that, you know, crossing Ocean Parkway, shifting from one culture to an entirely different culture simply by crossing a 100-foot street. She's really fascinating. I, I, I love, I really, really want to go and read a bunch of her books now. She's great. Yes, absolutely. So um, you can find her at uh, marianatogovnik.com. To get the spelling, just go to the show notes and and, and click on the link there and we'll also have uh, a link to her books. Uh, but yeah, wonderful conversation. Uh, really appreciate talking to someone who, you know, outside the sphere of um, psychotherapy, but nevertheless has something very valuable to add to what we're learning. Well, she's a great expression of the interconnection and how we're all talking and working about the same thing. And the more perspectives we utilize, the more lenses that we look through, the greater is our perspective and expansive capacities to attune to not only ourselves, but to our clients, but also in our social uh, experience. Uh, So I I think that was just wonderful. Okay, great. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. And just very quickly, if you do want to support us, please jump across to thesciencepsychotherapy.net. Become a member. You become part of the tribe. We'd love to have you. If that's not your cup of tea, then uh, you could buy us a cup of coffee. There's a link in the show notes. Or jump across to our YouTube channel and subscribe to that. There's a lot of ways you can support us. Thank you so much, everybody. And uh, from us, I'm going to say the first one to say goodbye this time. So goodbye, everybody. Till next time. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. For more great science, go to thescienceofpsychotherapy.com.